Hello everyone, I'm Harvey Brownstone, and today you're going to meet a remarkable couple. Each of them endured unspeakably horrific childhoods of abuse and neglect and ended up in the foster care system. They met in university, became best friends, fell in love, and helped each other overcome and heal from the unimaginable trauma and obstacles of their young lives. They've written a book entitled Redefining Normal, How Two Foster Kids Beat the Odds and Discovered Healing, Happiness, and Love. This is one of the most heartbreaking and heartwarming books I've ever read, and it's truly an honor to have this amazing couple appear on our show. They are Justin and Alexis Black. Justin and Alexis, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. We're really honored to be on here with you. Yeah, definitely. I must tell you that your book moved me so deeply that I'm simply dumbfounded that you each had the courage to, and the resilience to sit down and write it. Alexis, you experienced the loss of your mother, followed by monstrous sexual and physical abuse from your father and then from a boyfriend. Justin, you experienced parental drug addiction, domestic violence, and severe neglect and abuse. I want to start by asking what inspired you to write this book? Wow, it's a lot that went into it, but our main one of our main motivations behind writing the book was to have each and every person be so reflective of their culture, their identity, and the situation that they've grown up in. A lot of times, we we initially wrote this as a way of being selfish, as a way of you know just seeing how we can be so reflective as possible on ourselves and be supportive of ourselves or one another before we get into marriage. But this became something bigger than ourselves where we wanted to serve others and force others to be self-reflective of the things that have become normal to them and has been accepted or they've accepted and grown comfortable with instead of challenging the status quo. Mm -hmm. Alexis, as you know, every 73 seconds, a sexual assault occurs in the United States with almost 90% committed by someone the victim knows. Your father ended up going to jail for 15 years for what he did to you over an eight-year period. You explain in the book how young people internalize the sexual abuse they've suffered and they process it as shame, as though they've done something wrong. How did you get to the point where you finally understood that you were the victim, that you did nothing wrong? I think it took a lot of counseling. When I first entered foster care, the judge required that I go to counseling. So it wasn't probably till years after that. And I think it was through, uh, it was through counseling, group counseling, especially where I met with other women who have gone through something similar to where I learned that I wasn't alone in the process and just constantly individuals telling me that it wasn't my fault because we do carry a lot of that burden thinking, thinking that it was our fault. And even when we're writing our book, the editor was saying things like, Alexis, you got to reframe the way you're saying this because even now you still are framing it as you did something wrong. So I think it's still a part of our subconscious that maybe we could have done something or did, you know, done something better or differently to not cause or continue the trauma. Mm -hmm. Justin, you also felt guilt and shame at not being able to protect your mother from being beaten up by your dad, even though you were only a young boy and you couldn't be expected to do anything. How did you overcome those misplaced feelings of guilt? Well, you kind of have to see it as generational patterns being passed down in your family where, you know, it's not my, I mean, we, as adults, we have to make that decision to be better, but so much of what goes into who we are as young people 
then as adults, when we have children, we unconsciously pass things down. And I had to give my parents grace and mercy for their mistakes. And to honor them, which God tells us to do to honor your parents, I had to follow God and forgive them. But not only that, but change the culture and identity of our family for the next generation. So I was forced to forgive my dad and my mom and forced to change my behavior and not follow in those footsteps. Alexis, because of the abuse you suffered, you were left very vulnerable and you had an eight year relationship with a boyfriend who sadistically reinforced and compounded all the emotional damage that your father had already inflicted on you. It's very common for victims of child sexual assault to end up in abusive relationships themselves, isn't it? Absolutely. And we talk about that a lot in the presentations and the trainings and things that we do, especially with former foster youth, trying to look at our past trauma, especially through ACEs, adverse childhood experiences, to see what are we predisposed to depending on what we're taught by our parents and the experiences or trauma that we've gone through. Justin, you went into foster care at the age of nine because of parental addiction, domestic violence, homelessness, and severe neglect. You grew up in a world where drug dealers were considered celebrities. You wrote that you were so starved for love and nurturing that you confused attention with love and became a troublemaker at school just to get the other kids approval. What are the long-term effects on kids who don't feel loved by their parents? Well, you kind of follow in those footsteps. I mean, as human beings in general, we always are looking for somebody that can embrace us and love us. And if it's not your parents, then there'll be somebody in the world who has a negative influence over you. So I think a lot of times when we grow up in a situation in a household or a community where we're not embraced by our parents and we don't have that love from our parents, we go to... I mean, in this world, there's so much negativity around that, you know, the negativity will embrace you. Seemingly drugs embrace you, alcohol embrace you, and the things that are negative in this world will embrace you. So unfortunately, that's kind of the, the pathway that's set before a lot of people if they don't have that love and nurturing as a young child. And for me, it was kind of the same for a while, just following that pathway of looking to be embraced by people. Like I was talking about in the book, being embraced by my peers in school, which was always negative or a lot of times negative until I was able to figure things out on my own and be loved and nurtured by people who really wanted the best for me. You know, Justin, you wrote something very insightful in the book about bullies. You said that often bullies are kids who are seeking attention and approval from their peers because of what they're going through at home. I wanna tell you something, Justin, I was badly bullied at school and I hated those bullies but you made me realize that maybe some of those bullies were actually abused or neglected kids just seeking attention. And what you wrote has actually helped me to forgive them. And I want to thank you for that. Wow, that, that means a lot. Thank you so much. And, and that's kind of the point of the book, too. Just we want to challenge people to see all perspectives of things. Like I said, a lot of people see people who sell drugs in their community a certain way. A lot of people see people who are bullies in school a certain way. But you don't understand the perspective. You don't understand the situation and the background of it. And if we can go into every single situation with mercy, with grace, and try to have an understanding, then we won't see people as villains and attack. And we'll try to dig a little bit deeper. 
Alexis, you wrote that people who hurt other people were probably hurt themselves. Mm -hmm. Does that knowledge that the people who hurt you were victimized by others at some point in their own lives, does that knowledge help you to forgive the harm that they did to you? Absolutely. I think it plays into a bit what you were just talking about and what Justin just said of, you know, hurt people, hurt people and heal people, heal people. If you, if you are hurt and you still carry that hurt and that unforgiveness, then you try to seek that out in other people and do things, egg people on, antagonize people. You do things to try to cause hurt and pain in others to try to alleviate some of your burden that you carry. And in the same way with, if you carry forgiveness and healing and those things, then you really want to seek out those relationships that, that nourish that and help nurture uh, your healing journey as well. Alexis, one of the most powerful statements you made in the book is that emotional and psychological abuse is equally damaging and sometimes even more harmful than physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Can you explain why you say that? Absolutely. Because even though I was uh, sexually and physically abused by my biological father, I think that my abusive relationship where I was in for eight years with an individual that was very emotionally and mentally abusive, that was far more detrimental to me because I could disassociate from the physical harm. Bruises heal. I could move on. But that psychological abuse where it was attacking my worthiness, my identity, and all the things of the core of who I am, that is going to have a much longer impact than the physical. I want to talk with you now about foster care. Justin, you entered foster care at the age of nine and lived in four foster homes over 12 years. Alexis, you entered foster care when you were 13. At one point, each of you were placed with family. Justin, you were with your Aunt Cheryl. Alexis, you were placed with your Aunt Karen and Uncle Mark. Neither of these placements were very good for you. I think it's important to point out that just because a child is placed with a family member as opposed to a stranger, that doesn't necessarily spell success, does it? Not at all. And I, we just talked about it this morning because I had a presentation actually with my adoptive parents and uh, we talked about placement with family versus placement with somebody you don't know. And I think in the eyes of legislators and people that are creating laws, they want to put kids with their family. But I was put in an abusive household that only compounded my trauma, where when she kicked, when my aunt kicked me out after many, many threats later, she finally kicked me out. And what I thought was the worst thing ever uh, ended up being the best thing that ever happened to me because I met my foster now adoptive parents. So it really could go either way. But uh, in both of our situations, moving with people that you don't know and out of the environment and that uh, what was seen as normal in your family and those different ideals actually helped the both of us. Justin, I think many people don't realize that one of the biggest stresses for foster children is the fear of being kicked out and being homeless. You had that fear many times, didn't you? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was pretty common throughout my experience. And especially when the threats start to pile up, where you're threatened to be kicked out often, that, that fear is in the back of your mind a lot. And for a lot of uh, youth who are uh, experiencing foster care, they're like walking on eggshells, so to speak, when it could be small things. And sometimes, you know, if you have, if there are biological children in the house who live with their parents, you know, if they come home with bad grades or they need to repeat a grade or 
fail a class or don't do chores or disobey their parents, you know, there's no limit really to how many times they can do that because you're a lot of times attached to them for life, at least until a certain age. For a lot of youth who've experienced foster care, who can do those same, they can't do those same things because there's no permanent attachment. And it's almost like, you know, if it's a pet that you don't want, who's ripping up furniture, who is misbehaving, you can get rid of them easily. And I feel like that's how a lot of youth who experience in foster care is seen as if they're not behaving the right way, then you can just get rid of them. Instead of foster parents coming into a situation where they see this as I'm going to serve and help this youth no matter what, sometimes they just don't want to deal with the stress of it. And that's to say that it's easy being a parent at all. I'm sure it can push you to your limits, but I just think a lot of parents don't go into situations with a permanent or I'm going to do all I can, exhaust all my resources to serve this person so I can't anymore. Mm-hmm. Alexis, you finally got into a great foster home with Kim and Brian, who ended up adopting you in 2019. You've expressed such gratitude and admiration and love for Kim and Brian. They must be so proud of everything you and Justin have achieved. Yeah, they. I mean, they are. We had a presentation, as I mentioned this morning, and I'm just... I just love my parents so much. I kind of gush over them all the time and I can talk about them all day, every day of what I, all the lessons I've learned from them. And uh, because of our book, we were able to purchase our first home and be full-time entrepreneurs. And over the weekend, my dad came over for three days straight and just helped us with things around the house. Like a dad would that we don't realize all the things we don't know when you own a home, (laughs) but he was here to teach us a lot. I wish I lived closer to you. I would be your Uncle Harvey and I would come and help you. Oh, we appreciate that. We need all the love and support we can get. (laughs) I want to ask you about counseling. Alexis, you've been diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and PTSD twice. You've attempted suicide at least three times. You started counseling at the age of 13, but you wrote that you didn't start to heal until four years after you graduated from high school. So I have to ask you, did the counseling help you at all? I think I would say absolutely it did, especially the group counseling, because that was the first time I realized that I'm not alone, that other individuals, especially other young girls went through similar things that I, that I had. And so I was able to have these conversations, but the healing didn't necessarily start until after high school, because I was just going to counseling every day, just in survival mode of, I just need to get week to week living with my aunt and going through that abusive relationship. And so it was more of a Band-Aid, just trying to get me to the next week and, and hold on a little bit longer. Justin, your experience in counseling as a kid was a complete waste of time for a long time, wasn't it? I mean, until you finally found a good counselor as an adult. Yeah, I think uh, for a lot of young people, who are experiencing the foster care system or not even foster care who've experienced trauma in general, you don't really understand how counseling works. You don't understand the idea of meeting the right person or meeting the right counselor and everything that goes into it. You don't understand the effort that you need to put into it. And I was going to counseling between like 14 year, 13 or 14 years old. And I didn't understand what I should talk about how to talk about it, even from my experience with my teeth, with my parents and everything that was going on. I didn't exactly know how to process everything. So I couldn't, I didn't know what to talk about, how to talk about it or anything. You know, I was just living life. And I think that would a combination of not having the right counselor 
really impacted me and made me feel like, okay, I, I can't be helped at this point. This is just my life and I need to figure it out. Well, now I have to tell you, Justin and Alexis, I was so very impressed by your academic achievements. Both of you had such chaotic and traumatic and unstable childhoods. I'm amazed that you got through high school, let alone university. How did you manage to stay motivated and focused on getting an education? Well, for me, education has always been really the one thing that somebody couldn't take away from me. So it ended up being in large part my coping mechanism. So throughout, especially throughout high school and, uh, and even college, that was something that I just kind of grasped to for, for my own sanity and all the things that I was going through. So that definitely helped me stay motivated, motivated at least academically. And what about you, Justin? Uh, for me, I never... Going through school a lot of times, whether it's elementary, middle school, eventually in high school, I, a lot of times I didn't see a, what, what was the big reason, what was the big deal from getting good grades, what was the end results of working hard. I didn't get it, I didn't understand it, and I didn't see the point of it. I literally just went to straight by. And, you know, when you have technically a D in certain schools is a passing grade, so I would get C's and D's in, in a class that I actually liked, that I enjoyed. I would probably get an A or a B plus or something like that. But I didn't really see the value in it. But what kind of turned that around was me kind of seeing college as the end result, me seeing a career at the end of this, this pathway for myself, and me being convinced of that by many mentors and people around me. And I always want, I knew around maybe eighth or ninth grade that I wanted to go to college, but I, I was scraping by for so long that I didn't even think it was possible. And my grades only started to get worse after a while that I didn't think it was possible until I was surrounded by people who actually believed in me and surrounded by tutors and coaches who were, on, were always on me to force me to, to stay in class and get good grades and checking my report card. And people checking in on me, making sure I was good and actually concerned about me. So that's when I started to turn things around and actually see college as an end result and as a goal for myself. I'm just so impressed by both of you. And I'm also amazed by your relationship. You both came into it with a great deal of unresolved emotional pain and trauma. It's actually incredible that you were able to deal with each other's pain and not be overwhelmed by it and actually help to heal each other with everything you'd already been through in your own lives. Do you get how amazing that is? Well, I think you're giving us a lot more credit. I mean, it, we did see a lot of trauma in each other and we had to deal with that for a long time and it wasn't always easy on either one of our parts. And, you know, I think that's something we had to deal with a lot during the beginning of our relationship. And even today, we always process that. Today, we're in better position as a married couple to go through that and deal with it and have certain responses and support each other and be a servant of one another as we are filled and receive nurturing and grace from God. But uh, during the early parts of our relationship, we stumbled a lot and I saw Alexis as my counselor and my emotional support and my foundation uh, emotionally, which she shouldn't be. I needed to go to counseling. I needed to seek God as my foundation for my spiritual foundation, emotional and mental foundation, but I see my partner as that, which I started to kind of, a lot of foster you fall into that trap of finding someone who can be their, their crutch almost. And that was almost, that almost happened to our relationship, but we had to figure things out.
And you did. Mm-hmm. Now your book is entitled Redefining Normal. And you wrote about the need to redefine the concepts of love, family, and parenting to let go of what you learned as a child and discover healthy definitions of those concepts. How did you do that? That's a big question. (laughs) But I would say looking at even the structure of our book, because we were very intentional in even the layout of it. I mean, we wrote the book in about two months, but in that process, we had to figure out, you know, how are we going to write something where other people are going to take away from it? And so the first half I would say is more memoir. And the second half is more nonfiction. And you can see in the first half of our book, this we're laying the groundwork of this is what's happened to us that we had no control over. But about halfway through when we were had exposure to different things and different individuals in our lives, who cared about us and wanted us to, to see and be different than we were, that's when we were able to literally have that turning point and decide that we wanted better in our lives. So for us, that was the way that we started to redefine our normal was through that exposure and making that decision to do so because nobody was going to do that for us but ourselves. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Tell me about the role that your faith has played in your lives. Justin, you've mentioned your faith a few times already in this interview. What role has faith played in your life? I mean, faith is just, it's all the way through the book. And it's without faith, we wouldn't be where we are today, who we are today, and we wouldn't have anything. I think that was one of the things that really allowed us to write this book because we knew that God works more abundantly. God works to turn our, our most devastating experiences into our biggest successes. The reason why... It's, it's ironic because the reason why we have the home that we have now that we're speaking in, the home that we're speaking to you from, is because I was had the strength to talk about my experiences of being homeless, living in an abandoned house, uh, taking bucket showers, and all those things. And not only just going through those experiences, but advocating for others and being obedient to God because of it. So because of our obedience, because of our faith in God, to share the story uh, that we have to share what we've been through, even when we don't want to share it. This is our personal diary, pretty much. And we didn't want to share this. And it was very hard. And I give kudos to Alexis and so much praise to Alexis because it took so much for her to be vulnerable and open. And I knew pretty much everything. I didn't know details. And I honestly didn't know if I wanted to know details. And as we read the book to each other, to taking turns, you know, I cried a lot just reading her story because, like I said, I knew about it, but I didn't know specific details of it. And then you, as you read the book and go through these rooms and these situations with us, you know, you have to relive that experience. And we don't want to do that, but faith carried us to do that and inspire so many other people. And I know you have. Uh, and in addition to telling your own powerful stories, You've included some very important facts and statistics that most people may not know. For example, in the United States, about 435,000 children live in foster care, and over 125,000 of them are waiting to be adopted. Only 56% of foster children graduate from high school, less than 3% graduate from college, and almost 50% of foster youth become homeless within 18 months after leaving foster care. And almost 80% of prison inmates were foster children at some point. If you could fix the child welfare system, where would you start? Uh, that's, a, that's a huge question, but I think that we're starting with that now. 
I think this is what we're doing right now, that idea of normal. Because so many people, I think we talk about the idea of normal and relationships because your parents set that foundation. They set that foundation of normal. They set that foundation of your culture. And whether they're there or not, you're in a two-parent household, you have one parent there or you have no parents at all. If you have no parents, they set that culture and they set that journey of love that you're looking for that you'll probably find in the wrong place or the wrong area. So we're starting with the fundamentals of, of culture and foundation as it pertains to every single individual before they meet their partner, working with young individual before they may hopefully have a child, or even if they do have a child, but working on the, the fundamental characters of each individual and their identity. And before you're in a relationship, you give time and energy to anyone else. If you can focus on your identity, your character, and being the best version of yourself, understanding love for yourself and developing a healthy definition, understanding uh, the culture that you want for your household, for you mm -hmm. and your community first. And then when you meet a partner, they have those same values and similar values. So you don't have to scoot down to their values or their level, but you have that expectation and that standard for your partner you can come together and serve one another. And then once you have a child, you'll serve them and be filled with the grace and love of God. That's the process that we want for people. And that's the process of redefining that we have. But we want to work with each and every individual one-on-one -on -one so they can build that standard and culture for themselves. And then they'll pass that on to someone else and they'll build families and communities. And those communities will translate to the state and to the entire nation, and then hopefully to the globe. That's a little ambitious, but that's how ideally we want it to look. So if you had to give one piece of advice to the social workers in the child welfare system, what would it be? One of the biggest things that I would say is with any and every relationship, especially with social workers, is consistency. Mm -hmm. uh, making sure that when you have one youth or you have 20 youth, um, God forbid, <laughs> you are consistent in the relationship that you have with each one of them, that you're checking in, that you're providing the same information and the same knowledge. I can't tell you how different the information I receive from one caseworker to the next mm -hmm. and access to things and what they know. And it may not even be their fault. It may be the training that they've had, but just be try to be a super intentional that every single youth is getting the same level of care, depending on who you're working with, um, that, it's, that it's the same across the board and that information sharing is also the same and consistent. Mm -hmm. And what about foster parents? What advice would you have for, for foster parents? I think that community aspect is important. We can't come in or foster parents, I say we like I'm a foster parent, <laughs> but foster parents can't come into situations thinking that they're a hero or they're going to scoop a child up and just save them, but they have to come in letting their family know or their church or their community know that, hey, I'm getting ready to foster a youth right now, and I need your help. I need your support. We need driver training. We need tutors. We need math tutors, Spanish tutors. We need mentors, career mentors. You're an engineer. You're a judge. You're a lawyer. How about you take them on a shadow date? How about you take them here and expose them to that? And then how about we all come together and continue to fill this individual with words of encouragement. And even when they don't, the, their behavior doesn't reflect that, those positive things that you want for them, that you continue to speak that into them. I think foster parents can take that approach and get communities involved because it takes the community to raise each and every individual. But 
a lot of parents come in as a hero, but we need more community supporting youth. And once we have more community supporting youth, then we can have more success stories like myself and Alexis and thousands of other youth out there. Justin, you are so articulate. The two of you explain yourselves so, so well. I'm just so proud of you. Now, Justin, you've highlighted and emphasized the extreme plight of Black children and adults in the child welfare system and the justice system and in the lack of mental health resources. We can't reverse generational cycles of trauma in impoverished communities without better resources, can we? No, I mean, I think that's where it really starts, just uh, resources, resources, but also intentionality with each and every person being intentional and understanding their role. Everybody has a role to play as far as black or white or any other race, but specifically as it relates to the black communities, every single person has a role to play. And we've had too much trauma being passed down generation to generation and uh, so much trauma being normalized and accepted as culture that I feel like if we go through the process of being intentional on not accepting inferiority, but being treated as humans, treating ourselves as humans, and having that expectation for other uh, races to treat us as humans, I think that is very important. So we don't have to look for outside sources or people or, or other races or cultures to treat us with dignity. We can do that for ourselves and then demand and require that for other people. Amen. Tell us about the importance that mentoring has played in your lives. Oh man, we could talk about mentoring every day, yeah. but I can 100% say that we would not be where we are today as business owners and authors without mentors in our lives and uh -huh. specifically uh, our pastors who are also our mentors and constantly planting that seed of being business owners and authors where we didn't see that. I know I didn't when she first brought that to me. But she sat down and showed me the process. What does that look like? And she literally came up with the name and the structure of my first company. And then after that, she kept planting that seed and held me accountable for finally writing a book and gave me the resources to do so. Justin, you've mentored foster kids, haven't you? Yeah, I have. I've had the opportunity to. I haven't been able to as much, I think. Around COVID, I've kind of taken a step back, but definitely in college, I've done a lot of it. What's that experience like for you? It's a huge learning opportunity. I think being in that role, it kind of, you kind of see the difficulties and you kind of definitely get emotionally attached a lot. That's why I mean, myself and Alexis, we always say that we can never be social workers because it's so hard for us to emotionally disconnect. Mm -hmm. And for myself, I mean, I, you read about it in the book, how I was uh, mentoring a young kid who just, I feel like was a mirror of myself, especially at nine years old and just so lost and so filled with, so filled with so, so much love, but in need of so much more love. And I wanted to help and serve him, but didn't have the opportunity to because he was actually transferred from one home to another and that made him transfer schools. Mm -hmm. So the experience is unique, but it's heartbreaking at the same time. And it takes a lot of, it takes you really being humble to go through that process. I can understand what you're saying, because I think I'm going to have trouble disconnecting from you at the end of this interview. <laughs> no, you can always connect with us anytime you need. So. <laughs> if each of you could go back and speak to yourselves when you were young kids, what would you say? Alexis, what would you say to yourself as a young kid? I think the biggest 
thing that would make the, well, at least would make the most difference in my life is knowing that God loves me and that my identity is not rooted in other individuals, but in him. And I, uh, and that I'm worthy of all the things that are coming my way and the blessings and to be open and willing to receive that. I would say that that alone would have changed everything for me. (laughs) And what about you, Justin? What would you have said to a 10 year old Justin? Man, 10-year-old Justin, oh man. So I would say that, being honest, I would say you're going to go through a lot. You're going to go through things that may seem like it's impossible to overcome. But we serve a God of multiplication that everything that you go through, God is going to use it in a way to serve you and serve so many other people. And and it's going to multiply just who you are right now. It's going to multiply those experiences in every single area of your life. So you're going to go through a lot and I wouldn't lie to myself and say that you're not, but for every downfall, there's going to be something that's even greater and even more amazing. And just always, it sounds cliche, but have an optimistic mindset and always do your best and be happy with what you can control and just take care of that. I have to ask you this question. Have any of your family members read your book? Oh yeah. So I, I don't believe, my biological family has read entire parts of the book. I believe they've heard about certain parts and have talked about it and come to me about it. I've invited all my family to read it. A few family members have bought it, but I think it was more out of support. I've been a, a few issues of headbutting and everything and a few issues, but I think everybody's come together and and I believe if they read the entire book, they'll have a good understanding and there wouldn't be any issues. But of course, if you read one part of one page and you can be upset, I think overall uh, I had good intentions. And of course I made mistakes. Maybe I could have done things a little better, but I think God had his hands all over his project and I can't be mad at anything, but I love my family and I had no like intentions and ill will going into the book. So yeah, I've had family take a look at it, but it's been no major issues. What about you, Alexis? Any feedback from family? Not that I know. I don't, like, I don't know if any of my biological family has read it yet. And I think a lot of people are wondering, you know, the names that are in the book, are they the people that, like my birth family, are they, is that the same name? But the only, the only names that I kept in there were my adoptive family. And I think that if we would have written our book in mind where, like worried or concerned that our biological family would read it. I think we would be completely different. We had to write this book in the perspective that we didn't care who was going to read it. This was our story and we're going to own it Uh, just in the way that we own our mistakes and we own the things that we've done. We're going to own every piece of our story because we can't change it. And some people have to live with that, whether they like it or not, we had to be honest. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the important point. You spoke your truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you've co-founded a company called Rose Empowerment Group, and Rose stands for Rising Over Societal Expectations. Tell us about your company and its mission. Yeah, so Rose is basically an initiative under Redefining Normal. And focus is we want to impact individuals and their identity and character development. Secondly, we want to impact communities and how families communicate, how families come together how people establish relationships themselves. And then lastly, you want to have a great impact. We reverse things like generational trauma, reverse uh, systematic racism and other things like that through businesses, programs, initiatives. And right now we have our Rose and Concrete podcast, 
where we invite guests on to talk about their story of overcoming whether it's personal, professional, business, career. And we also just discuss many different topics that come from the book. And I'm pulling, I'm dragging Alexis on one of those episodes soon. Right now, we just host a podcast and we have many great things to come in the future as it relates to children's books based on those three concepts of individual community and impact and so many other things coming in the future that we're extremely excited about. How do people access the podcast? So you can access the podcast either through Rose or Redefining Normal. Go to read-definingnormal.com and it should be podcast in the top right corner. Or you can go to roseempowermentgroup.com, which also says podcast in the top right corner. And you can listen to it on all platforms, Apple Music, Spotify, search Rose from Concrete Podcast, listen, and feel free to contact us if you want to be a guest and share your story. Alexis, tell us about The Scholarship Expert and your book, The Scholarship Blueprint. Yeah, absolutely. So I started The Scholarship Expert in 2016 to help students to find and apply for scholarships. And so far, I've been able to help about 400 students. So even though we're not taking on clients right now because we're so busy with Redefining Normal, we are directing people to our website where we have a ton of resources and the exact things and the exact steps and tools that we did to raise over 360000 uh, in scholarships. And that website is thescholarshipexpert.com. Well, yeah. Justin and Alexis, I must tell you that your book, your advocacy on behalf of marginalized children and adults, your passion for helping people overcome childhood trauma, it's so worthwhile. It's so inspirational. It's been a real pleasure having you on our show. I couldn't be more proud of you than if you were my own kids. And I wish you every success in all of your endeavors. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us tonight. Yeah, of course. We definitely appreciate it. And just looking forward to everything that comes from this relationship. Our guests have been Alexis and Justin Black, authors of Redefining Normal. My name is Harvey Brownstone. Thank you to our producer, Steve Silver. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. Remember to subscribe to the Harvey Brownstone Interviews YouTube channel. Be sure to check out more interviews by Harvey Brownstone on this podcast channel.